and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Putin's repeated threat to use nuclear weapons, the latest in a bizarre speech he made on Friday, announcing the annexation of about one-fifth of Ukraine's territory. Joining us is William Arkin a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times. He served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. And we will discuss his article at Newsweek, Biden Thinks Non-Nuclear Threat Will Stop Putin, His Military Doesn't, and the possibility Putin will set off a high-altitude nuclear EMP blast that would not kill people, but the electromagnetic pulse would shut down Ukraine's grid and fry anything digital, along with satellites and drones, etc. Then we'll examine the contrast with how our government was so alarmed at the prospect that Saddam Hussein had nuclear weapons, which he didn't, compared to how nonchalant our current government appears to be as Putin threatens using his nukes, and he has 6,000 of them. Joining us is George Beebe, the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and as a White House advisor on Russia matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. Then finally, with elections today in Brazil, in which the incumbent Bolsonaro appears to be following Trump's playbook of declaring the election stolen and threatening to hold on to power no matter what the results are, we will speak with Andre Pagliarini, a professor of history at Hampton Sydney College, who is currently preparing a book manuscript on 20th century Brazilian nationalism. He had a recent article at the New Republic, Yeah, Bolsonaro's plan to burn Brazil to the ground. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. He also served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the U.S. Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. And he has an article at Newsweek, Biden Thinks Non-Nuclear Threats Will Stop Putin, His Military Doesn't. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Arkin. Thanks for having me on again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Bill. And so I guess the argument here that you put forth in Newsweek is that the deterrence is such that, you know, mutually assured destruction has been the kind of way it's been described, that it's better, I guess, to deter an enemy rather than threaten an enemy, that deterrence is something real, whereas threats can be amorphous. Am I describing the distinction correctly? Well, you are, but let me simplify it a little bit. So Vladimir Putin is threatening the use of nuclear weapons if Russian territorial integrity and the and the survival of the state is at stake. And the Biden administration has chosen at this particular moment to issue uh, not only serious public uh, statements regarding 
the consequences of, of Russia doing this, but also has communicated with Moscow of, through a variety of means uh, to make it clear to the Russians that, uh, that the use of nuclear weapons is unacceptable and that there would be severe consequences if they were used. Now, all of that sounds very straightforward, if not very tragic at the same time. But the fundamental question is not how the U.S. would respond if Russia used nuclear weapons. It's how the United States might do something or say something that would deter Vladimir Putin from using nuclear weapons in the first place. And the theory of deterrence is that whatever it is that you are threatening has to be both commensurate with the strike itself, with the nuclear attack, uh, in order to deter it. And then secondly, the assumption over the 60 years of the nuclear era has been that this is a nuclear strike in retaliation. And so therefore, it, in a way, the use of nuclear weapons is automatic if an enemy were to uh, threaten the use of nuclear weapons. And that is supposed to be the deterrent. Sometime in the Obama administration, this fundamental order was shifted, which is to say that if the Russians or Chinese or anybody else attacked America, uh, the idea of launching immediately as a retaliation was eliminated. The automaticity of it was eliminated, which is to say that uh, President Obama decided that he thought that U.S. nuclear forces and communications were resilient enough to actually wait uh, until the strike took place to decide what kind of retaliation took place. And the reason was that not only were there threats to the United States that were smaller and smaller, you know, in the case of, say, North Korea, it might be one nuclear strike on Hawaii. So do you want to uh, launch under attack and therefore possibly threaten China in the sa at the same time? And so the idea of it being sort of mutual assured destruction, we're going to attack no matter what if you attack us, uh, was eliminated. I, I don't think people really understood the significance of that at the time. And let's remember, Joe Biden was the vice president during these deliberations and this and this significant change. Now comes a, a case where uh, people feel that this is as likely to be a threat of nuclear use as any in history. And the question is, well, how do you deter Putin from using nuclear weapons in the first place? And the thinking that started in the in the Obama administration and even a little bit before is that our conventional nuclear weapons, our cyber weapons, our space weapons, uh, our special operations capabilities, our drone capabilities, et cetera, have become so significant and so uh, mature that perhaps there are non-nuclear ways of deterring a nuclear strike. And uh, my reporting shows uh, that there is a bit of a debate going on inside the government as to whether or not these non-nuclear options are sufficient to deter Vladimir Putin. Not whether or not they are capable of doing what it is they promised to be done, whether they're sufficient uh, to deter him in the first place, or whether nuclear weapons have to be front and center in terms of our threats. And if you notice over the past weekend, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, appeared on all three networks, and he talked about serious consequences. Uh, he, he talked about the graveness with which the United States that saw this and and that the and that they had made it very clear to the Russians what the consequences would be if they used nuclear weapons but Jake Sullivan never said the word nuclear and there were many people who in the military who genuinely feel uh, that a non-nuclear economic decapitation regime change threat is just not sufficient to deter the use of nuclear weapons and, and feel like the role of nuclear weapons uh, should be very clear to the Russians and that that statement should be very clear. So obviously, 
if Putin were to use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine, and I, I imagine it would be plural, he'd use more than one, then what I understand what uh, Sullivan was suggesting or hinting at was that the US would go after the tactical nuclear weapons themselves with conventional warheads. And would that happen as they were moved closer to the target? I mean, you'd, st you'd still be firing into Russian territory. And now, of course, Putin having annexed Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia and Kherson has increased his territory. Well, I think that you're spinning a scenario, Ian, that is a little archaic. Everyone I've talked to in the nuclear world has said that they don't anticipate that there will be a nuclear strike in Ukraine, mostly because, first of all, it couldn't have much of an impact on the battle. And second of all, it's too it's too direct in some ways that there's a belief on the part of the Russians that a demonstration attack uh, or or even something like conducting a nuclear test which would be something that hasn't been done since the Clinton administration, might be the demonstration of resolve on the part of Russia uh, that it is willing to use nuclear weapons in order to protect itself, in order to preserve uh, the rule of Putin and, and the status quo in Russia. And so really there isn't a lot of thought I mean, obviously, U.S. intelligence is watching this closely, but I don't think there's a lot of concern that nuclear weapons are going to be used in Ukraine itself. I think that there's much more of a concern that a low-yield nuclear weapon might be exploded in the atmosphere to create an electromagnetic pulse, uh, that even such a, an attack could happen in, in the United States or over North America. Uh, there's a lot of concern about a demonstration strike that might take place somewhere in the Arctic. But I don't think that the intelligence community is anticipating that Moscow will use nuclear weapons in, in Ukraine itself. And so that changes a bit both how you visualize what is the possibility and also what it, what would be an effective deterrent to a... Um, to a demonstration that many people might argue, well, that's not enough for the United States to have certain nuclear retaliation. And that's the very debate that's going on inside the administration right now, which is, well, if Russia exploded one nuclear weapon over Europe and fried the electrical grid and had obviously enormous impact on our digital society, is it enough to provoke a, a nuclear retaliation? And, and, and this is a very serious question because I think we have a lot of theory about nuclear weapons as we have in the entire nuclear age, but this is now where you have to think about it in a very tangible and practical sense, which is if the Russians were going to do something like that because they felt that the state was threatened, what would be the thing that would be necessary to stop them from doing it in the first place? But you couldn't, if you talk about the EMP, uh, high altitude nuclear blast that lets out this massive electromagnetic pulse that fries all the circuits, etc. Why wouldn't he do that over Ukraine? Wouldn't if he, particularly if he had some serious reverses and lost Kherson, uh, for example, which is and now he's got his troops are surrounded as well in in Lyman, so. If you fired a high-altitude nuclear device over Ukraine, it would fry all the circuits, it wouldn't kill people, and it would shut down all of the satellite assets and the drones, would it not? And it would be have serious effect? Without well, there's no question, Ian, that it would have a serious effect. But, but again, this is an analog war. <laughs> You know, this is a war being fought by tanks and by bullets and uh, by artillery, and it could completely continue were there such a an EMP strike that 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 didn't kill people. That obviously would still create nuclear fallout and radiation deaths associated with that nuclear blast. But most importantly, it would be on it would be breaking a precedent. It would be the first use of nuclear weapons in any kind of combat since uh, since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so I think the concern on the part of the U.S. government is that 
to actually cross the threshold would have enormous consequences for the rest of the world. It would open the door for the use of nuclear weapons in more in more significant ways, and 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 that that taboo has to be maintained under any circumstances. And it's not a question of whether Russia can turn the tide of the war in Ukraine. Russia is losing the war in Ukraine, Ian. And um, this might be a slow loss, but they're losing. They have been consistently losing since April. Uh, they haven't managed to take any additional territory since April. And they've now lost most of Kharkiv province. And they, ha- and they are not making progress in either Kherson, which is uh, the area that is west of the Dnieper River, or in Donetsk, where they are losing territory and losing territory even on the edges of Luhansk province as well. So, but hasn't Putin sort of uh, laid the table here a little bit in this bizarre speech he made on Friday, where he said the United States is the only country in the world that has twice used nuclear weapons, destroying the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and setting a precedent. And he also went on to talk about the bombing of Dresden and Hamburg, etc., during World War II. Um, a lot of analysts are, are suggesting that that's his way of saying, well, you've already broken the taboo. Well, I, there's no question that that is what Putin is saying, just like what we are saying. But we are now fighting nuclear war through a, a bunch of statements and messaging between the two sides rather than fighting a nuclear war with nuclear weapons. And so what Putin is saying is is not is not new. I mean, this has been the Russian and the Soviet position uh, forever. So uh, it's not that Putin is necessarily saying anything new. I think he's appealing to those who I've heard, even in the United States, make the argument for decades that, oh, it's the United States that's wrong in the nuclear world because they did use nuclear weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the norm of using nuclear weapons in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki was that it it was intended to save American lives, American lives that might have been lost had a full-scale invasion of Japan been necessary. The Russians are trying to now say that, well, we may have those same tactical conditions in which we need to save Russia from invasion and from being split up and from being destroyed. And indeed, that's not necessarily a, a ridiculous position for the Russians to have. But Putin's threats are not like different. Putin made threats about the use of nuclear weapons on February 24th when this war began, explicit threats. And he's made them a number of times since. Why the Biden administration is particularly worried now is that the Russians are losing so badly that the conditions for which Russia said it would use nuclear weapons, if its territorial integrity was questioned, or if the Russian state itself uh, faced an existential crisis, are beginning to happen. That's why the Biden administration is so exercised, not particularly because Vladimir Putin has made physical moves which would indicate that they are preparing to use nuclear weapons. It's because the conditions under which the Russians said they would use nuclear weapons are starting to emerge. So, obviously, nobody wants to end the world or destroy all of the United States and all of Russia over Ukraine. And that has always served Putin's purposes, hasn't it? The knowledge that the U.S. wouldn't want to have a nuclear war, and presumably, I don't know about Putin, but I think his military doesn't want to have a nuclear war. So how much is he taking advantage of of? that kind of, of not wanting to cross that threshold? I think, I think that that's a really good question, Ian. And I think ultimately that is the issue because, you know, nuclear weapons have stopped the war constantly in the last months. And whenever Putin makes a nuclear threat of any kind, the social media is taken over by that. The, new, the news media treats it as a more important story than the war itself. And I think Putin knows this, but we need to remind ourselves that it's not necessarily a question of whether or not we will get warning of Russian use of nuclear weapons. If we think about it, say, for instance, as a demonstration, or we think about it as 
an electromagnetic pulse created by the detonation of a nuclear weapon high in the atmosphere. That could be one missile being launched uh, in the next five minutes with no preparation other than the order to do so. The Russians just as much have intercontinental missiles on alert, uh, both land-based and sea-based, that could do this in a, in a minute. One, one missile. And so the ability of the United States and NATO to deter Russia from contemplating such a strike uh, has to be clear now. It has to be clear in what we're saying and what we're doing now. And what my reporting has shown is that it isn't clear what the Biden administration's response would be. And as a result, the severity of our deterrence threat is is may, may not be enough. So just in closing, obviously, you know, it's the l'état c'est moi, the state is me in Russia. This is a one-man show. And <clears throat> there are certain concerns about Putin's mental state. The speech that he gave on Friday was completely bizarre, talking about the golden billion and all these weird conspiracy theories and Satanism going on here in the United States, etc. But blowing up the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines, and he went on, he actually did a sort of false flag routine in his speech, just quoting him, saying on Friday, sanctions were not enough for the Anglo-Saxons. They moved on to sabotage. It is hard to believe, but it is a fact that they organized the blasts on the Nord Stream international gas pipelines, which run along the bottom of the Baltic Sea. It is clear to everyone who benefits from this. The fact that he would be, you know, that sort of petulant and you know, vindictive. I mean, it's obviously aimed at the Germans, like, okay, you guys, you don't want my gas, you're never going to get it. So this is a guy that's pushing the envelope, isn't it? It is. But so far, what we've seen, both in the national mobilization this week, and in Nordstrom, in Nordstrom, if that in fact is a Russian attack, as well as it seems like now Russia's willingness to use uh, everything that it has, and remember now, they've practically run out of short-range missiles. They're using even Iranian drones uh, to strike in Ukraine. They're using their own air defense missiles to strike in Ukraine. This is a leader and a country that is increasingly finding itself into a corner where it really doesn't have a lot of options or a lot of capabilities. And so when you see these ancillary things happening, especially when you see the national mobilization, which has evoked enormous uh, discord inside the country, uh, you're watching the state unravel. And, and, I, and I, I just want to remind the listeners that it is in that case uh, that Putin is saying uh, nuclear weapons might be used that he might use nuclear weapons. And it is in that, that despite the hurricanes in the news and despite Donald Trump and Mar-a-Lago and despite everything else that social media focuses on, it's amazing to me that the threat of a nuclear attack is greater than it's been in my lifetime. And yet this is not uh, being spoken about by government officials every day. And so we forget uh, that Putin is saying what Putin is saying because his back is up against a wall while we're just living our normal lives. And pretending that it's just rhetoric only when it's closer and closer to reality. So the worst of all possible worlds, isn't it? It is. And that's why I wrote my piece, which was that I was starting to hear inklings from my sources inside the military who were saying, uh, we need to be far more seized with this question, and we need to be crystal clear as to what it is we're saying to the Russians would be the consequences of such an escalation. Well, William Mark, and I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me on, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with William Arkin, who's a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts, whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. He also served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the U.S. Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the National Resources Defense Council and is the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, 
and his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11, and he has an article in Newsweek, Biden Thinks Non-Nuclear Threats Will Stop Putin, His Military Doesn't. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the contrast to how our government was so alarmed at the prospect that Saddam Hussein had nuclear weapons, which he didn't, compared to how nonchalant our current government appears to be as Putin threatens using his nukes, and he has 6,000 of them. Talking about yeah. nuclear war. Yeah. They're talking about yeah. nuclear war. Yeah. Have to push that button. Push that button. Got to go. Got to go. They're talking about. This nuclear war. They're talking about. They're talking about nuclear war. Got to push that button. If they push that button, your ass got to go. Your ass got to go. Got to push that button. If they push that button, your ass got to go. Your ass got to go. Gonna blast you. Blast you. So high in the sky. So high in the sky. Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is George Beebe, who's the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russian Analysis at the CIA and as a White House Advisor on Russian Matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. Welcome to Background Briefing, George Beebe. Thanks, Ian. So, Vladimir Putin has threatened to use nuclear weapons on a number of occasions, the most recent of which was in this bizarre speech he made on Friday, announcing the annexation of about one-fifth of Ukraine's territory. What I don't understand, George, is why, back at the time of the Iraq War, our government was so concerned and alarmed at the possibility that Saddam Hussein had nuclear weapons when it turned out he didn't have any, but they seem to be somewhat nonchalant about Putin and the threats that he has issued to use nuclear weapons, and he has 6,000 of them. Well, right. Uh, this is a very serious situation. Uh, we're, we are uh, in a, an escalatory spiral with the world's largest nuclear power, and Putin is most definitely threatening to use these weapons so this is a situation we need to take very, very seriously. And unfortunately, we've got ourselves in a situation where our options are narrowing. And uh, Putin has also maneuvered himself into a situation where he has few options available as well. So this is a formidable problem. And is there a way that President Biden can establish deterrence or is he, does he have to resort to threatening consequences, which is about all that I've been able to find out that uh, have been going on, although I imagine there have been some secret negotiations. What, what do you know uh, on that score? Well, the situation with deterrence is the same as it's been for the last six or seven decades, and that is the threat of massive retaliation should the Russians attempt to use nuclear weapons against the United States. So they're well aware of our strategic retaliatory capabilities, and that does serve as quite a powerful deterrent to attacking the United States. Unfortunately, the situation we're in right now is one where deterrence by itself is not enough. And, and what I mean by that is the Russians increasingly believe that they are backed into a corner and that they've got no choice but to fight back because they think that the survival of Russia is at stake. They believe that the United States and NATO have been maneuvering Russia into a corner and that what will happen if this continues is uh, we'll end up fomenting regime change and probably breaking up the Russian Federation. Now, those fears, I think, are exaggerated, but I don't think there's any doubt that that's the perception that the Russians have right now. So when you're dealing with a state that feels desperate and cornered, threatening them with massive retaliation 
by itself doesn't solve your problem. You're going to have to combine that deterrence with some sort of crisis management outreach, some kind of diplomatic engagement, uh, because if you don't, you're going to wind up with a, an escalatory problem. And this is similar to the way John Kennedy handled the Cuban Missile Crisis. He certainly threatened to attack Soviet forces in Cuba if the Soviet Union did not agree to remove those nuclear missiles. But he coupled that threat with diplomatic outreach that ultimately resulted in a bargain where we agreed to remove Jupiter missiles, our nuclear missiles that were in Italy and Turkey, in return for the Soviet Union removing its missiles from Cuba. So there was both the threat and the uh, diplomacy that were part of that. And I think the only way we're going to get out of the situation with the Russians right now is to take a similar tack. We combine deterrence and threat with a willingness to find some sort of compromise exit. But the Cuba crisis, of course, played out in public and people were quite panicked. What's happening so far with Jake Sullivan saying that he's been in touch with the Russians and the U.S. has threatened severe consequences? Does that mean to say, George Beebe, that Biden should go public? I mean, the at the U.N., of course, on the Security Council, the U.S., did condemn what Russia's threatening to do and what they're doing in terms of annexation of one-fifth of Ukraine's territory. But both China and India abstained. Well, right, which I think uh, tells you that our efforts to uh, isolate and, and condemn Russia on the world stage have not been as successful as we wanted them to be. There are significant players in the world, significant parts of the world that have not said they're going to join in in this condemnation and punishment of Russia. They're they're playing this much more neutrally. So what Kennedy did was certainly partially in public, but there was also a very significant private part of that, secret negotiations that went on. There was a back channel between Bobby Kennedy and the Soviet ambassador in Washington. Anatoly Dobrynin. And ultimately, it was that secret channel that uh, was the key to finding a face-saving exit for everybody involved. So I think that actually offers an important lesson for us today. Unavoidably, part of this has to happen in public. But unless there is a channel in which the two sides can talk seriously outside of the glare of the television cameras and find a way forward in which you can have a face-saving exit. I think that's the way we need to be going right now. So far, there seems to be a, a very heavy public component. I'm not aware that there's a secret component, but of course, you know, if, if it were actually going on, uh, very few people would be aware of it. But when you say they in reference to the Russians and their attitudes and the extent to which they feel cornered. Is there a distinction then between they, the Russian military, and what's, goes, what's left of the government short of Putin? Or is it all about Putin? Is it Putin who feels trapped or the Russians who feel trapped? Well, I think it's a little bit of both, but obviously Putin is by far the most important decision maker in all of this. He has a circle of aides that are clearly providing him with advice. How influential they are is anybody's guess right now. There's an awful lot of opacity uh, about what's going on behind the scenes in, in Moscow and uh, in leadership decision-making. So Putin is clearly the most important actor. But uh, my guess would be if, uh, if we were to try to open up a secret channel, to try to find a way out of this situation. Somebody like Nikolai Patrashev, who is the, uh, the head of Putin's Security Council over there, might be a good choice. He's someone with years of experience in, uh, in Russia's intelligence services. He seems to be somebody that is like-minded with Putin and somebody that Putin probably trusts to be an effective channel of communication. 
Well, Patrushev, of course, shares Putin's bizarre belief in uh, the conspiracy theory of the golden billion, which uh, is the the idea that on Wall Street and in the city of London, there there's a plan for the world's billionaires to get together and take over the world's resources. It's, this is a belief system that Putin mentioned in his bizarre speech on Friday, along with Satanism and all kinds of strange accusations. Apparently it's also shared by Medvedev and, and the Foreign Minister Lavrov. So it leads me to question whether we have got Putin right from the beginning. Of course, when you were in government, President George W. Bush talked about looking into his eyes and seeing his soul. Has he always been, Putin, always been a conspiracy theorist and, and believing some strange stuff? Because he got a reputation as being a savvy international statesman. But I can't see that how you can, you can, you know, reconcile those two. Well, yeah. So Putin didn't start out anti-Western. He, very early in his post-Soviet tenure, when he was the deputy to the mayor of St. Petersburg, the mayor of St. Petersburg at that time had a reputation for being among Russia's most liberal and, and Western-oriented leaders. And Putin had a reputation during that time for being very pro-business, somebody that was pragmatic and somebody that wanted a very constructive relationship with the West. And for most of the time after he first became president, he pursued a partnership with the United States. In fact, he at one point early on proposed that Russia become a NATO member. He went out of his way to try to build a very close partnership with the United States after 9-11. He actually called President Bush prior to the attack to warn that Russian intelligence had picked up some signals of some kind of major plot coming out of Afghanistan. And then after 9-11, he did an awful lot to facilitate the United States' efforts to deal with al-Qaeda, close down Russia's intelligence collection facility in Cuba. All of these were, I think, very strong signals that he was serious about trying to build a partnership. But things started to go wrong, and he began to grow very suspicious that the United States was not dealing straight with him. He, as a result of uh, several color revolutions, as they were called at the time, in in Georgia, in Ukraine, Moldova, um, he became more and more suspicious that the United States was saying one thing, talking about partnership and wanting to cooperate but doing something very different that was aimed at essentially cutting Russia down, eliminating its influence, trying to turn it into some sort of vassal state in his mind. And this perception grew over time. And I think he's reached the point now where he believes that the West has become uh, fundamentally evil, uh, a malevolent force in the world that is is no longer liberal, but is focused on building empire and uh, pursuing uh, ideas that he believes are a threat to traditional societies uh, like Russia. So this is this is a a process that's gone on for a couple of decades with him. Well, just to buttress what you just said, George, in his speech on Friday, Putin said the West began its colonial policy back in the Middle Ages and then followed the slave trade, the genocide of Indian indigenous tribes in America, the plunder of Africa, the wars of England and France against China and the opium trade, etc. So if he then was kind of a jilted lover in the latter part of his, well, halfway through, I guess, his, his tenure. Now he just seems to be very bitter. I mean, blowing up those Nord Stream pipelines, to my mind, is designed as a real, you know, an angry response to Germany saying to them, basically, you don't want our gas, you'll never get it. Well, I'm not sure that we should uh, come to a firm conclusion that the Russians were behind the Nord Stream uh, 
pipeline attacks. That may well may very well be true, but I think uh, there is very little evidence one way or the other at this point. But your largest your larger point that he is very angry, very angry, uh, quite bitter, and is acting in reckless ways is absolutely correct. This is a guy that I think uh, feels increasingly cornered, feels that his rule and Russia's existence are at stake. And when states feel their survival is at stake, when when leaders believe that their survival uh, is at stake, they can engage in quite reckless behavior and undertake you know great risks. So uh, we need to take this very seriously and treat it with a great deal of caution. So nobody wants the world to end over Ukraine. So what kind of off-ramp can we give Putin to de-escalate? Well, we're in a very difficult situation because given the extreme ways that Russia has behaved, I think nobody wants to reward that. Nobody wants to provide a face-saving way out to somebody that I think nobody sympathizes with. And um, I think the sense of justice that we all have disinclines us from trying to find a way out that would satisfy Putin even minimally. The problem is if we don't do that, we could well be on a course toward an absolute global catastrophe. So this is a a real uh, problem. And I think we're going to have to think very soberly about how we do find a way to climb down from the precipice that we're all on right now. That's going to have to involve some sort of compromise. And that is going to be something that no one will like. But the alternative, I think, is much, much worse. Well, George Beebe, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with George Beebe, who's the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and as White House Advisor on Russia Matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into today's elections in Brazil, in which the incumbent Bolsonaro appears to be following Trump's playbook of declaring the election stolen and threatening to hold on to power no matter what the results are. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Andre Pagliarini, who is a professor of history at the Hamden Sydney College, who's currently preparing a book manuscript on 20th century Brazilian nationalism. And he has a recent article at the New Republic, Yeah, Bolsonaro's Plan to Burn Brazil to the Ground. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andre Pagliarini. Well, thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to talk with you again. Well, thanks, Andre. And of course, today the elections are underway in Brazil. And the most important factor, at least what appears to me to be the most important factor, is that Lula, who is about 14 points ahead, has to avoid a runoff. He needs to win 50% of the vote, because if he doesn't, then you'll have another month of campaigning and the loser Bolsonaro is likely to get more and more desperate, and Brazil doesn't need that. So is that your fear as well? I think that's right. I mean, the polls, which um, in the past have been pretty reliable, indicate that Lula, obviously 
is way ahead in the first round of voting, and there's a chance of him um, avoiding a runoff by winning outright. But the polls also show that in a head-to-head with Bolsonaro in a potential second round, a potential runoff, Lula leads as well comfortably. But as you alluded to, the issue, uh, the concern about a runoff is not so much that that, that Bolsonaro might win, it's that he might make a mess of the situation. That, as you say, he might be increasingly desperate, recognizing, as all the polls indicate, that he will go down in defeat, um, that there's more time in that interim between the first round and second round of voting for chaos, for confusion, for something bad to happen. And so the closing case Lula and his allies have made in the, the final days of the first round is let's just end this uh, now, the, the the election. If Sure, Lula might not be your favorite candidate, but if you really want to defeat Bolsonaro and just be done with it, go with Lula in the first round. And that's been that's been his argument. We'll see by tonight if it worked. And what are the role of third parties then? Is there a spoiler factor here? So traditionally, um, in a, you know sort of normal years, you would have the first round of voting and then negotiations happen among the top two to see where those candidates sort of align. The argument that Lula in particular has made is that this is not a normal election, that uh, sure, there might be other candidates who people feel more closely aligned with. But in this year, sort of exceptionally, Bolsonaro poses a unique danger. So we need to just put aside those differences and just go the logic of the second round, which is sort of the least worst, whoever that might be, apply that to the first round. This is the argument they've made. And, you know, I, I think there is some indication that this argument may be working. We've seen, for example, the third place candidate, Ciro Gomez, former governor of Ceará and a former minister in Lula's administration, slowly but steadily losing support. Um, in in um, 2018, when he ran Ciro Gomez, he ended with double digits. Most recent polling has him about 6%. And presumably, because he's a candidate who positions himself sort of in the center, center left, Presumably, most of his voters seeing the polls and recognizing Bolsonaro's danger might uh, go ahead and embrace Lula in the first round, which might put him over the edge. So uh, if there if Lula wins outright, then obviously the, 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 the normal dynamic that would happen where candidates negotiate ahead of a second round would be moot. If there is a runoff, though, I think there will be um, a real urge for all the other candidates who are not Bolsonaro, to line up behind Lula. I think that that's pretty safe to say, that, that, that Bolsonaro will likely not gain the support of the other candidates who are defeated. But in Thursday's nationally televised debate, Bolsonaro declined to comment on whether he was plotting a coup, and recently he said, only God can remove me. So that's not very comforting. That's right. And, and this has been the concern, really, for anyone invested in democracy <laughs> when it comes to Brazil. This, this campaign cycle. Bolsonaro is clearly uncommitted to uh, normal democratic procedure. Uh, we saw, for, uh, for example, when he was in London for the funeral of, of Queen Elizabeth, he mentioned that, you know, I've been traveling all over Brazil. I've been all over. If I don't win in the first round, he said, something strange has happened. Now, not a single poll has shown him in the lead, let, let alone on the verge of winning outright. So as, as you suggest, he seems to be rhetorically laying the groundwork for some kind of extraordinary measures. Now, one thing that I think should be somewhat hopeful is that um, all of the heads of the active duty military have all said, whoever wins, wins. Now, it's, it's not comforting that the military has to weigh in on elections, but the fact that they're weighing in on the side, at least verbally, at least you know publicly, on the side of dem- democracy is, a, you know, it's some comfort. Well, as we know, in this country, the evangelicals supported Trump and still support him in spite of who he is, a criminal and possibly a traitor. In Brazil, the evangelicals, who are 30% of the vote, support Bolsonaro, and they have doubled their numbers in the last two decades. Yeah, I I have an article um, coming out probably early next year in a journal called Latin American Perspectives that really reflects on the question of evangelicals and what progressive parties, the left, the Workers' Party can do to at least mitigate the gap between progressive politicians in Brazil and this growing block of voters, that is evangelicals. Now, we'll have to wait for the, um, for the 
the numbers to come, but it, I, I think it's probably safe to say that both that Lula will do better in the end with evangelical voters than Fernando Haddad, the Workers' Party candidate, did in 2018, which is not saying too much. I mean, Bolsonaro did. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you know, but but much much stronger than than Haddad did with evangelical voters. But interestingly, intriguingly, Haddad actually did better, as does Lula in the polling, among Catholic voters than Bolsonaro does. But you're right to note that as the country becomes increasingly evangelical, it's still a majority Catholic, but increasingly evangelical, um, you know, progressive parties need to find some way to close the gap. Maybe not to win outright evangelicals, but to at least close the gap. And there are ways that we've seen Lula trying to do that in this campaign. Um, really two, two, I would categorize it as kind of two approaches. One is to question the Christianity of Bolsonaro to say that, you know, a real Christian doesn't talk about violence and death and killing in the way that Bolsonaro does. But the other pitch he's made is a material one, that for people of faith, working class, poor people, their fortunes have not improved under Bolsonaro. That whatever you think spiritually, spiritually in your cosmology, are you able to feed your family three meals? Does your son, do you, does your daughter, do they have a viable path to employment? Are there jobs? Are there, is there education? This, in my own view, is the more plausible, I think, path to winning back evangelicals to the PT, to the Workers' Party, which it should be noted during the heyday of the PT, right, from when Lula first won in 2002 through at least 2014, um, Lula actually won evangelical voters in, in, in several elections. Um, and so the point is to say that the association between evangelicals in Brazil and the right is not necessarily a given. But this is a long-term project that the left, I think, needs to figure out um, quickly. Well, one of Lula's campaigns... Um remarks was uh, Brazilians need to have a barbecue and a beer. On the other right. hand, Bolsonaro's campaign slogan is God, Homeland, Family, Freedom, and his supporters shout back, Mito, Mito, Mito. What is, what's that about? Yeah, uh, so the idea of Mito, Mito, it's basically like saying, you know, legend or, you know, that it literally means myth, but it's a way of kind of cheering on their guy by saying he's this legend, he's this incredible figure in Brazilian politics. And I think, I think this is a really good point you raise, which is that Lula's basic argument that every Brazilian should be entitled to a little bit of picanha, a little bit of meat, barbecue meat, and some beer, a cold beer, by which he means, right, some basic level of material comfort, to have your needs met, but also, yes, a little bit of a luxury sometimes. You know, he says that uh, a working class mother should be able to buy her son a new pair of shoes for school, for example, right, or a new dress for their daughter, that it shouldn't just be about making the bare minimum for the vast majority of Brazilians. Um, and I think Bolsonaro, to your point, that slogan of, of God and family and, and fatherland, he's appealing, I mean, it should be noted that these are kind of uh, literally fascist slogans uh, used by fascist parties. Um, Maloney in Italy has, has used the same, the same uh, phrasing, the exact same wording in, um, elsewhere, a neo-fascist in Italy, um, to get at I think these broader, almost transcendental ideas that there's a battle between good and evil that's happening here. Lula and Bolsonaro has said this explicitly that the Lula and the left are evil and that their side, the conservative side, the pro family and so on um, are the good guys. And so I think there is something profound in that distillation of what their pitch is, right? Lula is uh, arguing for material needs, material improvement. Your life was better under the workers party. Whereas Bolsonaro makes these broader, sort of sweeping, almost spiritual claims about what's at stake in this election. And if the polls are to be believed, Lula's pitch is more convincing this time. So we know that under Bolsonaro, the rainforests of Brazil have been raped and they continue to be destroyed. And the indigenous people are threatened and uh, the indigenous leaders are saying, with Bolsonaro, we die. With Lula, we live. And... Indigenous people are not only losing their habitat, they're also losing their lives from illegal loggers and miners. The, the fear is that not so much the military, as you pointed out, being involved in a coup, but the Brazilian police have been pretty infiltrated, haven't they, with Bolsonaro supporters. And it's worth noting that Brazilian cops kill nine times more than the U.S. police, and that's saying something. 
Right, right. I think the, the major concern of another four years of Bolsonaro is the hollowing out of Brazilian institutions. And that goes from the Amazon, where Brazil actually does have very good environmental legislation um, on the books in terms of what can be done in the Amazon, mining, logging, where it can be done. So very stringent protections for indigenous reservations. On the books, this is all there. Bolsonaro has simply refused to enforce it and, in fact, hollowed out the institutions tasked with enforcing all of this. So, of course, the laws in the books are only as good as the enforcement mechanism. If, if nobody's actually, you know, cracking down on illegal mining or, 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 or lumber extraction, in this case, because they're part of Bolsonaro's base, then there's really it's really open season on indigenous people who live in these parts of, of, of Brazil. Uh, and I think that same concern about the hollowing out of institutions applies to the institution of the military police, which in Brazil works at the state level. So police forces are militarized. Um, sort of the cops that you see walking around on the street, the cops on the beat um, are military police, which means that they're organized in, in battalions and in barracks. And it's there that um, I've, I've, I've written about this and others have, have argued as well. That I think is the real threat. It's not so much soldiers in uniform that if Bolsonaro really decides to embrace a coup full on, that is where I would look with most concern is that is the police forces at the state level, because in the previous sort of dress rehearsals, Bolsonaro has carried out for a coup on September 7th last year, for example, Brazilian Independence Day. There were public accounts of military police colonels and captains urging their battalions to come out in support of the president. And so one worries that if Bolsonaro decides to light the match, that the the tinderboxes of these police forces at the various state levels could, you know, gulf the country in flames. I, I still think that that's an unlikely scenario, but this is the concern. Well, Andre Pagliarini, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, it was a very nice to talk to you about all this, Ian. It's a, it's a big, big day for Brazilians, and I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, you know, fill your listeners in on it. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Andre Pagliarini, who is a professor of history at Hamden Sydney College, who is currently preparing a book manuscript on 20th century Brazilian nationalism. And he has a recent article at the New Republic, Yeah, Bolsonaro's Plan to Burn Brazil to the Ground. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.